Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So Holly, yeah. when you took uh, like U.S. history classes that talked about the civil rights movement, mm-hmm. do you feel like a lot of the focus was on the things that African Americans were not allowed to do. So like almost the entirety of the focus. Yeah. So like being barred from the schools and the restrooms and other whites only places, being kept from voting, um, being denied legal protections that white people really took for granted. Like all of that kind of stuff feels like a big part of the context for the civil rights movement in history classes in the United States. For sure. So There's actually a whole other part of that equation, which is the things that only African-Americans were allowed to do. There were jobs that used an entirely black workforce as a way to subjugate people and maintain a racial status quo. I only became aware that this was a thing, like as an adult. Yeah, me too. I definitely do not recall ever having that as part of a class. Well, and even having having taken a... and an entire class on social movements, a third of which was devoted to the civil rights movement in college. I don't think that's something that we really got into. Um, but today we're going to talk about one of these jobs, which was the sleeping car porter. In the 1920s, sleeping car porters unionized and they successfully fought for better pay and working conditions. Their union, which was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, became the first African-American labor union to be recognized by the American Federation of Labor. While the union started out campaigning for more money and better treatment for its members, it became an important uh, force for social change during the American Civil Rights Movement. But before we talk about the porters and their union specifically, we need to just talk a little bit about trains because it's important to contextualize where all this was going on. So by the end of the 19th century, the railroad was basically the easiest and fastest way to travel long distances in the United States. But until an industrialist named George Pullman put his stamp on the sleeping car, the trip wasn't really comfortable, particularly if you had to travel overnight. Uh, that's actually still true today. Yes, I've made multiple trips by train from Atlanta to Washington, D.C. that were all overnight. And it it's not comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I had a sleeping car one time and that was marginally more comfortable, but still not the like total luxury experience that it became uh, in in the 19th century. So the Pullman Company put out its first sleeper car in 1865. These cars featured really beautiful and com- comfortable furnishings. There were berths that converted from seats and folded down from the walls. But what really set Pullman cars apart from the other sleeper cars on the market was their staff of porters, the first of whom was hired in 1867. Railroad lines who wanted to have Pullman cars as part of their trains leased them from the Pullman company, and a staff of maids and porters came along as part of the package. And the porter's work was really what made the Pullman cars a true luxury experience. 
They had an exceptional reputation for quality and service. The porters would make down the beds at night and they would make them back up again in the morning. They would brush uh, travelers' coats. They would polish shoes. They served meals and beverages and basically attended to every need a passenger might have throughout their journey, including looking after and cleaning up after sick passengers. Like They took care of people in every possible way. And porters were even responsible for the safety and security of passengers, including children. And for almost a 100 years, they were also exclusively African-American. Many of the earliest Pullman porters were recently freed slaves. And as the years wore on, the Pullman Company made a concerted effort of hiring most of its porters out of the Deep South. Once hired, the workers mostly worked out of northern railroad hub cities, especially Chicago. And George Pullman got a great deal of praise at the time for employing so many black workers, but his motives were not philanthropic, and he did not try to disguise that fact. He chose African-American labor for his sleeping cars because he knew he would get a workforce that was grateful to have a job and would be willing to accept low pay and work grueling hours. He expected newly freed slaves to be used to being subservient to white people. And the white passengers were also accustomed to having African-Americans around as a servant class. Uh, so African-Americans, for context, could ride these trains, but they had to ride in segregated cars, and they certainly were not allowed to ride in sleeper cars. Yes, so it was basically an exclusively black workforce waiting on a almost exclusively uh, white customer base. By the 1920s, more than 20,000 African-American men were employed as Pullman porters and other train personnel. The Pullman Company became the largest employer of African-American men in the United States. Uh, There were also African-American maids who worked on the trains. Um, There was about one maid for every 50 porters in the mid-1920s. And the job of a Pullman porter was actually a highly coveted one. And porters were very well respected within their home communities. The job did not require a lot of heavy manual labor, uh, which was rare among jobs for African-American men. And porters got to travel all over. uh, And so they became sources of information about jobs and news when they would travel back home. And they also, as a consequence, wound up being the company's best recruiters because they would return home with stories of adventure and travel and they would have pockets full of tips. So it looked like a very glamorous, uh, you know, really pretty cushy job to a lot of people. Yes. But in reality, porters worked extremely long hours for not much money. A Pullman porter uh, in the 20s had to work 400 hours or travel 11,000 miles in a month, whichever came first to earn his full pay. So if you're doing math in your head right now, that is 13 to 14 hours a day every day with zero days off during the month, or about two round trips all the way across the country from New York to San Francisco. The base salary for this work was about $817 a year in the 1920s. Um, I looked at a bunch of different ways to calculate how much this means today, and they are widely... Yeah, it's hard to do the transliteration on... Yeah. Yeah. So if if you really, really want a number, we can call it about twenty two thousand dollars for 30 or 31, 13 or 14 hour days minimum. And I was whining earlier about how angry I get just having to get up in the morning. 
most porters actually made more in tips than they did in salary. And added together, this these two incomes often made up for more money than many other jobs open to African Americans. But it was much, much less than white people could make in other Pullman Company jobs. For example, porters made much less than the conductors, who were all white, uh, yet they often had to do the work of the conductor. Porters also had to spend a lot of their pay on things that they needed for work, including food, uniforms, and shoe polish. They also had to pay for their own lodging during layovers. And if passengers walked off with combs or towels or other small items, as often happens in any kind of situation like that, it was docked from the porter's pay. And then there were uh, parts of the job that were really, quite frankly, degrading. Uh, for example, the porter's blankets were never allowed to be mixed with the passenger's blankets in the wash. And to achieve this, they were color-coded. So the porter's blankets were blue, and the passenger's blankets were a sort of salmon color. When the passenger blankets started to wear out and become unfit for use, they would be dyed blue, and then those worn-out blankets would be given to the porters. The porters didn't get to use these blankets much, though. Most of them got to sleep a maximum of three hours a night. And that really was a maximum. They were There would be nights when they didn't sleep at all. Um, we're using this 13 to 14 hour a day number as an average. Uh, in reality, there were days off and, and they would be working more like 21 hours in a day for most of their working time. Um, so they, they did not get a lot of sleep. They also had no berths assigned to them. Porters usually had to sleep on couches in the smoking car behind a screen and they were not allowed to clear the car so that they could sleep. Porters were also required to answer to the name of George. Uh, this was a holdover from when slaves were referred to by their master's names. And just as often they were called, not by a name at all, but by a racial slur that we are not interested in repeating here, uh, you could probably guess what it is. And it was pretty much a given that calling a porter George meant the same thing as using that slur. Because of segregation, it was also entirely possible for porters to have no safe place to sleep and nowhere to get food during layovers, and the company really didn't do anything to compensate for that. Porters who tried to address any of these issues with the company faced retaliation in the form of being branded troublemakers or even just fired. So the porters, uh, you know, recognizing that there were conditions about their work that they would like to change, tried to unionize three times between 1909 and 1913. None of these was successful, but the company realized that had a problem, so it started its own union, the Pullman Porters Benefit Association, in 1915. Its first chairman, Arthur A. Wells, was actually George Pullman's personal assistant and his attendant in his private car. The company also established the Employee Representation Plan in 1920, which was purportedly to focus on getting better pay. It docked the money to fund this plan out of the porters' salaries. So it had basically, the the company recognized its its labor issue, quote, and then tried to address it by making this kind of company-run union. Yeah. And this wasn't the only time that the Pullman Company had really taken the bull by the horns to try to solve labor problems. In 1880, the Pullman Company built the town of Pullman, which was south of Chicago, as worker housing. 
And from the outside, it really looked like a wholesome place to live. But the company controlled everything about it, down to what books the library could have. It was a dry town, and the only place that served alcohol was a hotel, but you could only get alcohol there if you were a guest and not a resident of the town. So when a depression started in 1894 and residents couldn't afford to live on what was left after the company payroll deducted their rent, it contributed to a strike that was so bad the federal government had to intervene. George Pullman's relationship with his employees was contentious enough that when he died in 1897, he left instructions that he be entombed in steel and concrete so that disgruntled employees could not desecrate his body. Yeah, that's... That's an adversarial relationship. Quite adversarial. To put it extremely mildly. Well, and the town of Pullman is a fascinating story on its own. It it had kind of a extremely weird Stepford quality about it. The company would come and search people's homes just because, like, it was really a surveillance state for the people who were living there. Um, so back to the porters. Finally, in 1925, a New York porter named Ashley L. Totten got four other porters together in secret, and together they approached a man named A. Philip Randolph to help them start a union and to lead it once it was off the ground. A. Philip Randolph had never worked for the Pullman Company. He'd never even ridden in one of its cars. But he did have a long history and a notorious reputation for labor activism. He was also a pacifist, he was an atheist, and he was a socialist. So in short, that meant that he basically had enemies everywhere. But he was an excellent advocate, uh, and he was really devoted to the cause of labor rights. At this point, he had a long history of political activity, including a very long effort to encourage African Americans to unionize and to advocate for themselves in labor issues. So after some initial reluctance, uh, he decided to help start a union. And before we talk about the union... Would you like to take a moment and talk about a word from our sponsor? That sounds spectacular. Now on to the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. It had its first meeting on August 25th, 1925, and it published a list of demands in The Messenger, which was a magazine that A. Philip Randolph had co-founded in 1917. Among these demands were a significant pay raise, abolishing the practice of tipping, providing adequate rest breaks, and increasing the pensions. And the porters also demanded that a name card be placed in each car so that passengers could call could call them their actual names instead of George. And it may seem kind of odd that they would want to abolish tipping since that was a source of income. But because Porter's base pay was so low, they had to be completely subservient and ingratiating to white riders at all times in the hope of getting a better tip so that they were making a living wage. So abolishing tips could lessen but not entirely remove one of the most degrading aspects of their job. The Pullman Company met zero of these demands, and it also did not recognize the union as a legitimate organization that it would notif- that would negotiate with. It started firing people who were working with the union and infiltrating union meetings with spies. And because of all the espionage that was going on on the company's part, the Brotherhood became extremely secretive. There were secret passwords. There were secret handshakes. The porters' wives were also instrumental in maintaining secrecy. Uh, they formed an ancillary network to distribute information and even attend uh, on their husband's behalf if spies were said to be present. 
the Porter's wives eventually formed uh, what was called the Ladies Auxiliary, which campaigned. They held fundraisers. They helped keep the union members' morale up during the really long effort to get official recognition. And without the Ladies Auxiliary, the Brotherhood probably would have failed. Espionage was also only one way that the company tried to outmaneuver the union. The Pullman Company started by negotiating pay raises with the in-house union to try to make it look good. These were much, much smaller raises than what the union or the, you know, the Brotherhood was campaigning for. It also started strategically hiring people it thought would be more compliant. And it also did its share of media spin about how well paid and well treated its employees were, including publishing articles to that effect in the black papers. It also cooked its numbers with its own polls that it conducted to make it look like 85% of the porters were in favor of the in-house union and not the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And the Brotherhood's effort to be recognized went on for 12 extremely difficult years. There was name-calling on both sides. Uh, The company branded union supporters as communists and the union branding porters who wouldn't join as traitors to their race. The company intimidated people who talked about joining and the union intimidated people who didn't join. Yeah, it was kind of an ugly fight on both sides in a lot of ways. And then in the late 1920s, the union nearly collapsed. Following a call for a strike that never got off the ground, the Brotherhood's membership started to drop because people started were starting to feel really frustrated about the fact that nothing was actually changing Membership was halved between 1928 and 1929, and then again by 1931. Then, thanks to the Great Depression, the threat of job loss made people even more reluctant to be involved in the union. So by 1933, it only had 658 members. But in 1934, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt signed the National Labor Relations Act, which encouraged collective bargaining and gave the union a legal footing that it had not had before and membership started to grow again. In 1935, the Pullman Company finally sat down with Randolph and other members of the union to negotiate for the first time. Two years later, the Pullman Company finally recognized the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. The Brotherhood signed its first labor agreement with the company on August 25th of that year. This agreement raised the minimum salary from $77.50 to $89.50 a month. That might not sound like the most monumental pay increase, but it was for 240 hours of work, not 400. The agreement also guaranteed sleeping time. It established a procedure for handling grievances and uh, gave some other benefits as well. Over the years, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters continued to negotiate with the Pullman Company. The monthly pay, when averaged out to an hourly rate, was eventually better than that of engineers, conductors, and other railroad positions that were, at that point, held by white people. Working conditions improved as well. Gradually, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters also turned its attention to helping other labor organizations integrate the jobs that had previously been acceptable only for white people. As a side note, it was apparently an all-white organization of guys named George called the Society for the Prevention of Calling Sleeping Car Porters George that convinced the Pullman Company to put name cards for the porters in the cars. Yeah. These were basically white people named George who objected to the associations with their name that were happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like if the name Tracy had become some sort of racial slur and you and all the other Tracys said, that's not cool. 
I think my motivation would be a little different than, yes. <laughs> than the organization's motivation was. Yeah, theirs so, was probably one that they did not want to be associated right. with black so, people, but they they did eventually uh move away from the practice of just calling everyone George. So the Pullman Company made a practice of buying up a lot of its competitors. And in 1940, the United States Department of Justice filed an antitrust complaint against the company. In the end, the company was ordered to divest itself of either its business of operating sleeper cars or its business of building sleeper cars. If this sort of rings a bell in your mind, it was cited as a precedent in the Microsoft antitrust case. This case continued to shake out through the 1940s, and in 1947, Pullman formally handed over ownership of the sleeping car business to a consortium of 57 railroads. The Brotherhood continued to negotiate with the railroads, and by this point, it was no longer an exclusively African-American organization. It also represented white barbers, maids from the Philippines, and others working in service positions on the railroads. At about this same time, the Brotherhood and its leadership and its members also started to become a force for equal rights outside of their working life. So in the 1940s, many African-Americans moved to urban areas where defense work was in full swing because there was a huge demand for workers as part of the war effort. The problem was once they got there, African-Americans often faced harassment and discrimination, and there was a federal hiring system that favored white people. Uh, Randolph and other black leaders actually met with Eleanor Roosevelt and members of the cabinet, promising a protest march on Washington. On June 25th of 1941, FDR issued Executive Order 8802, which said in part, quote, I do hereby reaffirm the policy of the United States that there shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in defense industries or government because of race, creed, color, or national origin. After World War II, Randolph was also part of the effort to integrate the American Army. And thanks in part to his campaigning, but also to the realities of needing the black vote to win re-election, President Harry S. Truman banned segregation of the armed forces through Executive Order 9981 on July 26, 1948. Randolph was also a director of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, at which Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. E.D. Nixon, whose name you may remember from our recent episode uh, on Rosa Parks, worked on the Montgomery bus boycott. He was also a sleeping car porter, and in fact, he took himself out of the running to be president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, which was the position that was held by Dr. Martin Luther King because of his work schedule. Like E.D. Nixon, other Pullman porters became civil rights activists in their own hometowns. The Brotherhood and its members had gone up against white, a white power structure and eventually won. Because of the nature of their jobs, the porters were also acutely aware of the effects of racism and discrimination. The porters used all this experience to become important sources of information and organization throughout the civil rights movement. They also smuggled and distributed pamphlets and literature, bypassing the mail system. Yeah. So if you had places where corrupt mail officials were just trashing things instead of delivering them, they they had a way to work around that by uh, using this network of, of sleeping car porters. The railroad really dropped off as a means of travel in the 1960s, thanks to the rise of air travel and the interstate highway system. The number of Pullman porters working really just dropped precipitously. There were only about 3,000 of them by 1962. 
And after the civil rights movement, and in spite of the involvement and leadership on the part of so many members, a lot of people really stopped seeing the Pullman Porters as the labor and civil rights champions that they had been for so many years. And instead, they remembered the part where African-American porters kowtowed to white passengers for tips. Yeah, it's, I think that's one of the saddest things about this whole story. It really is. Um, you, you have a group of people who worked so hard for so long to take an take ownership of their jobs and and to gain a measure of dignity in a job that was inherently demeaning in a lot of ways but today the takeaway to a lot of people is this image that's offensive really and completely mischaracterized yeah 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 the brotherhood of sleeping car porters merged with the brotherhood of railway airline steamship clerks freight handlers express and station employees in 1978 uh, that is a very long name for basically what was a, a similar organization of service positions in travel. Um, and this was just because at that point there weren't really sleeping cars in that way anymore. And as for A. Philip Randolph, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1964. He died on May 16th of 1979. Um, there is a really great book called Rising from the Rails, Pullman Porters and the Making of the Black Middle Class, which is by Larry Ty and... Uh, one of the awesome things about it, in addition to the fact that it gives a chronology of the whole, uh, like the job of sleeping car porter and the, uh, the work of the union and, and the progress that was made over the years, is that the author tracked down as many living Pullman porters as he could find, uh, or their families, like immediate family members and children, to talk to them about what the job was like and, uh, about what their lives were like and about what the time was like. And so there are just so many first-person accounts in this book. Um, if you are interested in it at all, um, you, you should, you should check it out and, and take a look at it. Uh, it is a very interesting story with many things that we have not talked about here. Um, there's also a book called Marching Together, Women of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is something that we only touched on a little bit today. Um, the sleeping car porters are, at various points also had and maids in its name uh, because there were also maids working on the cars. Uh, but the porters definitely get uh, more attention in terms of uh, historical accounts and that kind of thing. Do you also have listener mail for us? Why, yes, I do. This is from John, and it is about our episode on the Pueblo Revolt. Hey, guys, I really appreciated your Pueblo Revolt podcast and was happy to hear you guys talk about my home state of New Mexico, the land of enchantment. I thought you might be interested to hear some additional info I learned on a recent visit to the Acoma Pueblo near Grants, New Mexico. While on tour through the Pueblo, which is still alive and inhabited with residents, we went into the Spaniard Church, which was built in 1629, atop the mesa with the rest of the Pueblo structures. What I was surprised to learn while inside the stripped-down church was how the Spaniards used brute force to make the Acoma people construct the church with supplies gathered around the mesa. Some of the main structural pieces were very large vigas, which are wooden support trusses, which were gathered from atop the nearby Mount Taylor more than 30 miles away. These huge timbers were specially selected by the Spaniards and were carried on the backs of the Pueblo people all the way back to the church site. It was mentioned that because of the religious significance of these specially selected timbers, the Acoma people carrying the, the trees were not allowed to let the timber touch the ground on the way back. Otherwise, they would be forced to drop the Viga and head back to the mountain to find a new one to replace it. I can only imagine the difficulty in that task, especially after seeing El Malpe, the Badland, 
which is a large expanse of lava flows between the Sky City Acoma Pueblo and Mount Taylor, which the Acoma must have had to deal with, with crossing while carrying the timbers for the Spaniards. I hope this helped to give you guys a more in-depth look at the pressures the Pueblo people were faced with, and I look forward to many more of your podcast. That is a kind of heartbreaking story. It is. Uh, it was also a chance for me to correctly pronounce the word Acoma, which I said completely wrong uh, in the episode because it the, the pronunciation looked so obvious to me that I did not look it up. It happens. Um, I also mispronounced Juan de Oñate, and that was just because I badly tried to speak Spanish. I <laughs> did not do a good job with it. So thank you so much, John. If you would like to write to us about this or any other episode, you can. We are at historypodcast.discovery.com. We are also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com. Uh, and our pretty fun pin board, which I am enjoying pinning things to you, is on Pinterest at pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to learn more about some of what we've talked about today, you can come to our website, Put the word March on Washington, uh, which A. Philip Randolph helped to coordinate. Put that in the search bar and you will find how the March on Washington worked. You can learn all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.